Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 24th, 2020. This is episode 2647 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Friday, and I do have an expert counsel show for you. Remember to uh, get your question answered by an expert counsel member. This is the procedure to follow. Number one, send me an email to jack at com. Again, jack at com. Two, in the subject line, include the phrase or word or an acronym or whatever you want to call it, TSPC. And it'd be like TSPC Expert Council Question or TSPC Expert, something like that. Uh, that means if it goes into any sort of spam filtration hell, I will be able to dig it out for you. Next, say, Jack, this question is for expert council member bloody blah blah. Don't put bloody blah blah down. There is no bloody blah blah on the expert council. Put instead of bloody blah blah the expert council member in question like Derek Bonpietro or Jeff Lawton or Sean Mills or John Pugliano or Micah Sulaprise or whomever it's for. Uh, the next step in one sentence, give me your question. I want to know blah 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 blah. Question mark. Then hit return, and then give me all the details you want. But if you can get that one question asked, then that expert council member and I will know the question you're asking, and you'll get an accurate answer. If you don't follow that procedure, there's a good chance that you will never hear the answer to your question on the air. With that, here's what we're going to be talking about today. Derek Bonpietro is going to talk about moving from an ATV to a UTV for homestead use. Uh, developing an environmental sustainability course for high school students from Jeff Lawton, who's uh, finished. He's now finished up his quarantine in Australia from his travel back, but uh, he was uh, in quarantine when he answered this question. I think it'll be the last one we get from him from quarantine. Uh, determining the quality of supplements with Gary Collins. Determining how much you can run with any given generator from Sean Mills. Making sense of the recent hysteria over negative oil prices and why it isn't what you think it is from John Pugliano. And I'll give you an analogy to make it even more clear if what John says doesn't make it completely and abundantly clear. And then I have a simple question on whether or not to use rock substrate in an above-ground pond like a Miyagi pond or any of the other small garden ponds that we may build in a backyard. Uh, before we get to that, let's start out today with a quote of the day. I really like this quote. Uh, this is by Ayn Rand, and uh, a lot of people say Ayn Rand. It's actually Ayn, as though it were I-N-E, or like for mine. Um, I've, I've taken shit for that sometimes when I say Ayn Rand. Um, the person who says you pronounce the name Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand, before you email me and tell me I'm wrong, is Ayn Rand herself. That's, that's, that's who says that's how to pronounce her name. So anyway, Ayn Rand said, A creative man is motivated by the desire to achieve, not by the desire to beat others. And boy, there's so much in that. Um, and, and I want you to think about it in, in a, a, maybe a different way than it makes you initially think about it. Let's say there's some sort of a contest, and many people have engaged in that contest in the past. And you go into some given class of that, uh, amateur, pro, whatever, and you win a competition, and you then beat others. 
Now, on some level, you have been motivated by the desire to achieve, to be the best at something. And then that's one thing. But in the end, that entire thing is, is predicated on the fact that there are others to defeat, and that in itself is the achievement. And what you've accomplished is really nothing new. If you were competing in a one-mile run, and you ran the mile the fastest it's ever been run, like a new world record, well, maybe. But anything short of that, you've just done something that many other people have done. You haven't really achieved anything other than you've, you've called yourself to do better. And that's fine, but I think when you look at achievement, real achievement in the world is when you do something that has never been done before. And when you do that, it opens up that world to others to realize that they can do it too. And not all achievement needs to be that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, but that is like the highest form of achievement. And that achievement is not in the defeat of someone else, or even a defeat in the, the, the words of the person who said it couldn't be done. I mean, that might drive you some, but in the end, what you really want is that achievement. Because that is how we advance society. That is how we advance the world. Somebody picks things up and says, I know that people say this is not possible, but I'm going to do it. And for every person that does it, like a thousand fail. And sometimes a person fails a thousand times before they achieve it once, or they find one thing they can achieve that was said never could be achieved, but then everything changes. It's like a switch goes on, and all of a sudden others start using that thing, whatever it is, to do more for the world. But we can bring that back. We can bring that back to, we don't always have to be doing something that's never been done before. We only have to do something that we have never been able to do before. But are we doing it because we want to win against a competitor? Or are we doing it because we want the rewards of it in our life? Because we're motivated. So I don't build a hydroponic system to, to take something that seems kind of mundane in this world to make a picture of my plants growing better than some other person's. I build that hydroponic system and I take a step out and I build that system with everything that I know and everything that I can intuit because I want the rewards that that system produces. I want more food for my family, more food for my livestock, and I want to be able to share with other people how they can do it for themselves. That's pure raw motivation. It doesn't matter where whatever I produce or whatever I do compares to what somebody else does. But does it give me that which I am seeking? And if I'm seeking it at a higher level, does it give other people something? And, and that is the spirit of the free market. For all of the talk that capitalism is about cutthroat competition, what capitalism is really all about is that if you give people the opportunity to succeed you also have to allow them the opportunity to fail. But if you do those two things, failure upon failure will lead to success. And it is those successes that then make everything better for everyone. Just my thoughts on that quote by Ayn Rand. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take our first one today. This, again, is Derek Bonpietro discussing um, having an ATV and wanting to have a little bit more utility, a little bit more ease of maintenance, and uh, just a little bit more comfort as well in upgrading to a UTV and what to look for. Hey, TSP listeners, this is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. 
a little bit under the weather myself, but still answering questions. I've got one from Grodin about UTVs, so let's dig into it. Grodin writes, I want to upgrade from a four-wheel ATV to a UTV. What should I be looking for in terms of specs and even brands slash models? I had potential access to a used Kubota until the pandemic turned the world upside down. Details. I have a Polaris ATV that is too small for the purposes I have and has been a continual problem mechanically. I'm a relatively big guy and find it hard to stand on my head to do anything on this machine to do maintenance or repairs. Ideally, I would get something larger that will allow me to do the work myself. I want to haul stuff around the homestead, a couple of hundred pounds, and even pull a small trailer and a couple of implements. I do not need a PTO. Any help you can offer would be great. Thank you. So I want to talk about a couple of things first. He has a Polaris ATV, and I have to say I have worked in the industry in the past, and Polaris is always the cheapest offering. They are uh, worst as far as reliability goes, and they're just a pain in the butt to work on. So I, I think Polaris brand, I would personally stay away from them. Now, the next thing is that you're looking to go from uh, an ATV to a UTV because you're tired of the accessibility or serviceability of the unit itself. And I have to say that you're really not going to gain much. So I see the reason why you want to go to the bigger machine because of what you're looking to do with it, but don't think you're going to get out of working on something really tight. Uh, ATVs are kind of a pain in the butt to work on, and side-by-sides are the same exact way. So don't think just because it's physically larger, serviceability is going to get any better. Uh, I do know for a fact that basically almost everything you're going to do on these is going to require a lot of plastics removal, and you're still going to be standing on your head trying to get in there. So don't think you're working on like a full-size pickup truck where you can just sit in the engine bay and start working on things. It's not going to be like that. So as long as you're okay with all of those, obviously we'll talk about side-by-sides and maybe some alternatives, but don't trade up thinking you're going to get away from these things. So you mentioned that you don't need a PTO, which is great because that's probably going to keep you out of the larger, higher-end priced side-by-sides or any kind of larger utility machine. So a couple hundred pounds in the bed or pulling a small trailer is no problem for realistically any side-by-side that's on the market right now. The larger utility offerings are into the 1,000, 1,500-pound range as far as uh, capacity goes, so you're going to have no problem doing this with really any kind of side-by-side. But obviously, for what you're looking to do with it, I'd probably look towards the utility ones and not necessarily like the go-fast kind. All right, so let's talk about brands. So right out of the gate, I would eliminate Polaris. I really just do not like them. Uh, Some people love them, and they certainly manufacture them to a price point, but not a big fan. Uh, the Honda machines, as far as the ATVs go, I've never really been impressed with either, so I'd stay away from them. Uh, realistically, I, I'm a big fan of the Can-Ams, and they're, again, they're not as easy to work on uh, because they require a lot of plastics removal to do anything, but Can-Am makes a really nice, high-quality product. So I think if you're looking and they have something that fits the bill, I'd be looking at one of those. Uh, the Kawasaki Mule has been around forever. They've been one of the first players in the game. And uh, they're a pretty high-quality product. Uh, I've done a little work on the diesel model. I don't think you need one. And honestly, the expense, I'd stay away from the diesel. I would definitely look towards the gasoline. But uh, I worked on a unit for a guy that used to take it up into Canada and drive hundreds, if not thousands of miles every trip on just stone roads. And, man, did that thing take a beating. And it just took it like it was no problem. He had his all camping gear and fishing gear in the back. So very impressed with that model. I think that's a high quality, and I've seen it take a pretty good beating. So I'm a big fan of the Kawasaki Mule. John Deere Gator, uh, just from the spec sheet, is very capable. But you know what? You pay a lot for that brand. Um, So realistically, I think it's a matter of where's your price point at. And then also, what's the support network you have? So you're going to want to be near a dealer 
or some kind of repair shop, if you're not going to be doing the work yourself, that offers parts and support for these models. Uh, you mentioned that you like working on some stuff yourself, so that's not necessarily a problem. But when you buy a John Deere, you're paying a lot for the name, so just be aware of that. So let's talk about price point. If you're buying one brand new, thirteen dollars to $16,000 for a basic utility model is going to be where you're going to be at price point-wise. Now, this is going to be a really great buying opportunity because right now interest rates are low. Everybody's looking to push product because nobody's buying. So I think if you're in the market to purchase right now, it's going to be a pretty opportunistic time for something like that, and even more so on a used unit if people are looking to get money. So now I'd like to talk about maybe some alternative products. Now, now I don't have a problem with side-by-sides, but I'm really just not a big fan. They're kind of like something that doesn't know what it's supposed to be. Bigger than an ATV, you can haul a couple of people. Some of these models, you can go pretty fast in them off-road, but they offer very limited capability and ground clearance. So unless you're looking to just go over jumps and stuff, off-road, they're really not great compared to like a Jeep. And you can't drive them on the road unless you get a low-speed plate for them. And they're very expensive, and they require a lot of maintenance. Not uncommon for every couple of years to have to get in there and replace all the suspension bushings, put a new belt in the CVT transmission, which I personally am not a big fan of in a side-by-side. Belts belong in snowmobiles. So they kind of got a couple things going against them, and people spend all kinds of money for them. So, yeah, there's a certain application for it, and... Yeah, they can technically get on ATV trails, which is great, even though for some reason they're bigger than what they're supposed to be, because I think there's a width limit on ATV trails. So there's a time and a place for a side-by-side. But if you're going to spend that kind of money, a couple of alternatives I would talk about is maybe look at an older Jeep, maybe a Wrangler, or even a Suzuki Samurai. You know, if you're in in a budget of $5,000 or more, you can pick up one that's pretty clean, that's going to work just fine, and you can actually put a license plate on it and drive it down the road. And it's going to work as a secondary or third vehicle for you. I would consider one of those, you know, you're going to get a lot of the same capability. You can certainly take the top off one and throw some stuff in the back, hook a trailer to it and go. It's not a problem. Don't forget that those vehicles at that price point are probably going to remain relatively flat or actually go up over time, where the value of a side-by-side is probably going to go down until it hits a few grand and then just stay relatively flat because they're making brand new ones and everybody wants a new one. I'd maybe even throw in there a little Tacoma or something like that from the 90s. You know, those are all great vehicles that'll probably serve your purpose. And I can tell you right now that one, they're going to require a lot less maintenance. They're going to, two, they're going to perform a lot better than a side-by-side for what you're looking to do with it, maybe just off-road wise. Um, But then they're going to also probably go up in value compared to a side-by-side. The other alternative, if you can't find something like that in your area, is you can import something from Japan. So three to four thousand dollars will get you a right-hand drive Suzuki Samurai that's pretty much mint from Japan, and it's going to have a little turbo three-cylinder engine. And you can probably find one with power steering and air conditioning, options that were never offered in the States. I mean, that's really cheap money for something. And they might not be as uh, fast off-road as some of the higher-end side-by-sides, but you're going to get kind of the same bed space. You're going to get a lot better ability to put some normal street uh, tires for a truck on them and be able to take them in a field and things like that. And you can buy bumpers and suspension and stuff. But I just think overall, they're cheaper to get into, they're cheaper to run and maintain, and you get a lot more options for them. Think of something like that too as an alternative where you can get into something like that for, you know, a third the price of a brand new side by side and it's going to work just fine. And they're going to be a lot easier to work on if you're a do it yourselfer. So I'll throw that out there. And if you're dead set on a side by side, I get it. I'd be looking at the Can Am or maybe the Kawasaki as the best offerings on the market. And the last one up I completely forgot about is the new Roxor, and that's R-O-X-O-R. That's 
a it's a really complicated story, but it's a company that's Indian based that's making kind of a Jeep knockoff, an old CJ series, in that they own rights to older Jeep parts, so they're manufacturing these as brand new. It's technically a side-by-side. It's not street legal, although there's a lot of workarounds where you can get a plate on them in some states and drive them on the street. And they're very basic utility vehicles, turbo diesel, five-speed manual transmission, transfer case. It's live axles under leaf springs, and there's a lot of mods that you can get on on them, aftermarket parts, tops, heaters, all kinds of stuff. But they're brand new. I think they're around 15 or 16 grand to start, and you can get financing for them. So it's a great option. Again, maybe that fits the bill if you want something that's more utility but brand new and you're not buying like a Jeep or something like that. So think of that one as well. That's kind of an interesting character in the side-by-side lineup and might fit the bill for what you're looking to do. Well, hey, you're right, and I hope that answers your question. Check out AffordableDCGenerators.com if you need an inexpensive DC power supply solution for charging batteries and running power inverters. Supposed to run on a full-speed generator all the time. Thanks for the question, guys. Take care. Next up, let's hear from Jeff Lawton on developing a course for high school students. Hi, it's Jeff Lawton here coming to you from a quarantine hotel in Melbourne. We're just less than one week to go now, and we'll be back at Zaytuna Farm. So we have a question here coming in from Zeke, who is a public high school uh, teacher in Pittsburgh, and uh, he's wanting to set up uh, a um, a uh, applied science environmental uh, applied environmental sustainability course involving permaculture, um, and he's asking about some ad- advice here. Well, one bit of advice I can definitely give is there's a fantastic book in Australia that you should get called Outdoor Classrooms, written by Janet Millington. Um, and um, Carolyn Nuttall. It's used as a textbook in Australia and schools, um, and it's very high quality, and it gives you lots and lots of uh, curricula for uh, taking this on. Um, and um, you've made lots of suggestions here about uh, setting up different types of rainwater collectors. Um, um, of course, Australia has fantastic uh, drinking water from rainwater. Most of us drink rainwater. We prefer it definitely to the uh, chemicalised mains water, and we don't filter it much either as well. Uh, and um, so there's lots of reference material there. Uh, solar hot water heaters, of course, um, they're very, very common today, um, and, and most people use those, and they're subsidised to use them. Uh, solar electricity, of course, uh, copper, indium, gallium, selenium are the new state-of-the-art panels um, because they don't derate with temperature and uh, they have a very short-term payback on embodied energy, about 18 months because they're electroplate technology. You should look into those. And, uh, of course, the long-term batteries are nickel-iron because they'll last 100 years. Uh, they're a heavier investment, heavier physically, larger in size, but they're very long-term. So if you're having a stationary system, they're the ultimate uh, efficient system over the over the uh, lifetime of the product um, over the embodied energy of manufacturer. Um, uh, windmills, yeah, yeah, you can get into that, but uh, if you live in a site that's good for wind energy, it's a horrible place to live usually. Um, so they don't work well with human habitat really. Um, and then um, indoor-outdoor garden systems and, um, and biogas. Um, 
biogas is interesting for sure, especially small ones. Big ones where you're involving a lot of humanure is a bit funny for most people who are not used to handling and making manure slurpees of humanure. Um, but small ones can be interesting for sure. You can make them with 1,000-litre totes. Um, Indoor-outdoor gardening. I think security for school children, children is very much about how they make fertiliser um, themselves and don't have to buy it. And, and how they then realise when they set up perennial systems um, and uh, diverse productive ecologies, i.e. food forest and forest garden scenarios, that the system itself provides most of the green material, brown material and manure with the wildlife interactions of um, you know, a- animal um, excretions and, 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 and body interactions in life and death cycles. But if you set up a, a Berkeley compost, you can also show students with a microscope the diversity of organisms because it's all about um, inoculating the soil with beneficial organisms. So that's microscope work. So you can get into um, looking at the different types of organisms in a compost, and you can make it in 18 days, no problem. That's the Berkeley method. Look up some of my videos. If you don't want to work on weekends, which most schools aren't open at weekends, you can set up a one and a half cubic meter cage, uh, cage the material with um, separated layers, say um, four to six inches in each layer, um, brown, green. Um, manure, brown green, manure, brown green, manure, brown green, manure right to the top, get the moisture right, cover it for a week, and then turn it on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So one week sat in a cage, um, and three weeks turning every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you'll get a compost in 28 days instead of 18, which works with the school curricula. Um, you can then extend that whole process uh, by one, using uh, bare soil gardening without fertilizer and um, then take temperatures of the soil and compare it to um, the same garden scenario with mulch and see how much cooler it is um, in summer, warmer it is in winter at soil surface and how little, uh, you know, what the reduction in, in water demand is. And then you can do gardens with compost and mulch and see what the production difference is by planting the same crops at the same time in bare soil, the same crops at the same time in mulch soil, the same crops at the same time with um, compost and mulch soil. So you can see the difference, and students like seeing that difference. You can bring into the equation here um, worm farms, how you make a worm farm, how that produces um, beneficial worm castings, which are uh, stickier than compost, and have less fungal-dominated organisms. When you look through the microscope, they're more bacterial-dominated. You can muck about with compost when you get better um, by, um, um, as you go through a curricula, with making more fungal-dominated compost, which are better for forest woody woody species, i.e. forest species, trees, woody species, non-herbaceous. Herbaceous species and pasture are bacterial-dominated soils. You can get the students to understand all that. Um, this is good. These are great lessons. Um, you can even go to biofert in the end um, and make anaerobic, um, long-term, uh, soluble fertilizer by going through a brewing process with an airlocked biofert. You can look all this up. 
But, um, you know, you, you can get a compost thermometer and, and, and gauge the compost if it's, if it's hotter in the middle and, and cooler on the outside. Um, it, it's usually a little bit um, dry. And if it's cooler in the middle and hotter on the outside, it's usually a little bit wet. These are moisture contents in relation to the temperature changes through the heap. All these things students can, can take a record of, get involved in microscopes, look at the, the baseline data to the um, um, uh, results. And they can be um, um, results that you can calculate or, or assess um, in, a, in, a, in a laboratory setting or out physically in the actual um, landscape and see the results in crop. You can measure the results in crop. Um, so giving students that confidence and then, then set the task of how does an ecosystem work if it doesn't, if there isn't anybody in the ecosystem making compost, what is it that actually builds soil? It's obviously the inputs of the ecosystem. How can that be? How can we imitate that so we have less and less requirement to actually make a compost? Um, from um, sources of materials, um, you know, the, the, the green, fresh material, prunings. Um, how does that work in a forest uh, ecosystem? The brown material is in the broken down woody material that's been, has a larger surface area. Um, how does that work in a forest? And where does the manure and the nitrogen content come from? All the manures and the, and the bodies of, of moldable animal interactions in a forest, etc., etc. Um, this is these are all things that uh, give students great confidence that they have life skills which are um, so meaningful um, and 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 go beyond um, what we what we require to survive in a in a in an abundant way. And, and how is it when you interact with domestic animals through those systems and mitigate all the claims that, um, you know, you've got methane and you've got water being used by animals? Of course, animals don't retain water in their bodies. It comes out the other end as a, as a, uh, improved product called urine, which is, um, very high in nitrogen and is absorbed by ecosystems. So animals in their right position are crucial elements to ecosystems. We can't make our gauges and on the world has to have factory animals. The world doesn't have to have factory animals. Um, they're, they're often uh, create pollution rather than ecosystem stimuli. Um, we need to tell the school children the truth about um, the, um, the balance of um, the creative system's abundance and uh, how that fits into um, the uh, fear factor of modern industrialised humans in cities that insist that we have to start separating ecosystems between vegetables and animals and, and diet requirements. There you go. Good stuff there. Next up, let's hear from Gary Collins on determining quality when selecting supplements. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com, the Simple Life best-selling book series, uh, the Going Off the Grid book series, and Your Better Life podcast. I'm the host and creator of that as well. Go check it out. 
when it comes to supplements. Oh boy, the supplement industry, shady. Just like our medical industry, there, there, there's no safe haven. But when it comes to supplements, I have some basic rules. First of all, you get what you pay for. If it's really cheap, it's probably a really cheap supplement. Uh, good supplements are not cheap to make. Don't buy supplements from celebrities. Don't buy them from multi-level marketing uh, companies. And also avoid... Uh, you know, buying them, uh, buying them in general. I tell people, I wrote an article about don't buy them off eBay, Craigslist, and Amazon. Um, a lot of counterfeits and a lot of garbage. So the difference, well, it's a wide variety. Uh, main brands to store brands, it's all over the board. I, I wish I could give you a simple answer. There is none. There's thousands and thousands of supplement companies. Uh, but if you kind of stick with those basic rules that I just gave you, you're usually pretty safe. If you're looking, it's like anything. If you're looking to bargain hunt when it comes to your health, it's a bad idea. It's like bargain hunting for food and getting your food at the dollar store, which I know people do. That's terrible. It's a bad idea getting corn chips from, which you shouldn't be eating anyway, but getting corn chips made in China with Chinese writing on them from the dollar store. Really bad idea. Anything you put in your body, you need to do the research, you need to put in the time, and you need to pay the price. If it's a good product, more than likely it's going to cost more. Do some shady products try and charge you more for crappy products? Absolutely. But again, if I gave, if you follow those rules that I gave you, you're going to be pretty much safe. And by the way, guys, I've had a supplement line for eight years. <laughs> so I don't know if, uh, if this individual knew that, but, um, they're not cheap, but they're not expensive. I charge what's fair. So hope that helps guys. Again, make sure to check out my new podcast, Your Better Life. The, where I disagree, and you might infer this right off the bat, is the whole comment about Amazon. And I want to be nice to my friend Gary, but every person I know that has a supplement line that they market finds a reason that you shouldn't buy supplements from as many places as they can come up with. And I think it's just human nature, and I, I don't fault Gary for it. And I don't disagree that there's a lot of scam artistry type things that go on on Amazon. However, if you buy from a company that you know that is being sold by the company that you know on Amazon, you are buying their product. So this is not a, a supplement that I would recommend, for instance, but I would not recommend, you know, because I just don't think it's the quality that you're really looking for. But if we look at a national brand that you'll know when I say it, um, Centrum. And my problem with Centrum is I don't believe you have enough absorbability. And I think a lot of the micronutrients uh, that are in there, specifically minerals or in forms that are, that are not easily uh, absorbed by the body. But I have no doubt that if I go on Amazon and I buy Centrum and the vendor listed is Centrum, that I'm going to get Centrum. Just as I have no doubt that if I go buy a Wilson volleyball from Amazon, yes, I'm referencing a movie, but if I buy a Wilson volleyball from Wilson, on Amazon, and Wilson is the vendor, I'm going to get a Wilson volleyball. So I think the entire idea of don't buy supplements from Amazon is absolute... I'm just going to say it. I'm sorry, Gary. It's bullshit. It's bullshit, and I think it's from a jaded view. And I also think it's not necessarily wrong, but it can still be bullshit. And the way I mean that is my brother-in-law, who's a cop, who sees nothing but thefts and burglaries and stuff like that, was aghast 
um, for instance, when we had a house closer to where he lives, that I parked my truck overnight on the street instead of in my driveway. Now, I want you to understand, my driveway was about as long as an average bedroom in a suburban house, and my truck was parked literally at the corner of my street and my driveway where my mailbox was. But it was more likely to be burglarized because it was in the street than in the driveway. Now, this, to anybody with any perspective makes no sense that you would worry about this. Specifically since there's nothing in the vehicle for anybody to take anyway. And, and, and the reality is that you would be probably just as likely to burglarize my vehicle sitting in my driveway as sitting on the street. Now, if it was down the street, around the corner, in a dark space, yes. But why does my brother-in-law think this way? Because he's a cop and it's all he sees. His car's broken into. All the time. Every day. So every car everywhere is going to get broken into. So what Gary sees is the scams that go on in a place like Amazon or even eBay, right? Now, see, the problem with an eBay or the problems with a Craigslist, and I, I've never even heard of anybody buying supplements on Craigslist and eBay, but the problem there is that you're not dealing with a known distributor or, I'm sorry, a known manufacturer. So, again, like you can go on um, Amazon, and one of the brands that I find to be very high quality there is, is called Doctor's Best, And if you buy a Doctor's Best product from Doctor's Best, guess what you're getting? So it's not that he's wrong. It's that it – here's another way to explain it. So there's a rule. I'm a snake keeper. I've kept snakes my whole life. We tell people only keep one snake to a vivarium. A vivarium is a cage, right? One snake in a cage. Now – We say that, and then people who are experienced keep two, three, sometimes more snakes in a single enclosure. You go to the zoo, and if you talk to any of the herpetologists at the zoo, what are they going to tell you? Well, I'm thinking about keeping a ball python or two. Well, then you better get two cages if you want two ball Don't keep them together unless you know you're doing a breeding thing, and then they need to separate. And Don't keep them together. And you walk through the, the zoo, two snakes, three snakes, two snakes, three snakes, four snakes in that one. Oh, but we're – see – What they're saying is in generally correct, in general correct, that the person who does not know animal husbandry and who is just starting should not keep two snakes in one vivarium. That's, that's true. There's, there's things you need to learn about animal husbandry, about setting up hot and cool sites to your vivarium, about getting a maintenance schedule in place, about feeding so you don't have a feeding error. One, one animal actually can end up injuring or even consuming the other animal. Um, there's a lot of things to learn. But it, it's nothing that a person who has a reasonable IQ can't figure out in about six months' time. So the, the proper advice should be new herpetologists, new herp enthusiasts, new uh, animal keepers should not keep two serpents in the same cage until they develop about six months to a year of experience uh, when they can then try the first and most compatible animals and they can develop from there. But instead we just say don't do it because it's easy. When you say don't buy supplements on Amazon, what you're saying is a person's not intelligent enough to infer whether or not they're buying from the vendor that makes the product. Because if I would buy that product on a store shelf, then why wouldn't I buy it on Amazon? It's just a virtual store shelf. Hopefully that makes sense, and it isn't completely in conflict with Gary saying, but it is something I need to clear up because I recommend supplements on Amazon. And by the way, Gary doesn't like it when I do that. 
and I'm sorry, Gary, you have great supplements, but you don't have everything. And I have no problem recommending a quality supplement off Amazon. Let's take another one. This is one for Sean Mills on determining what exactly you can run with any given generator. Hey, TSP, this is Sean Mills with HackMySolar.com, and today I have a question about generators. Uh, so this question comes from Carlos in Hot Springs. He says, Sean, how could I determine what I could run on a generator? Details. I have a 3,500-watt gas-powered generator that we use for a 22-cubic-foot refrigerator and a large chest freezer when the power goes out. I have heard that generators have a maximum efficiency with a certain load and was wanting to know how to determine what I could run. I would like to be able to run a window AC and a couple other small appliances. I know that I may not be able to run everything at the same time, but do not want to waste gas by not using the generator at its full potential. Uh, well, great question, Carlos. Um, and I'm, I'm glad to see that you already know you can't run everything at the same time uh, on a 3,500-watt uh, generator. Uh, but there are a few things that you're going to want to understand about generators here. So the first one is that it is always going to use gas based on what the loads are assuming those loads are more than about 50% of the rated capacity. So below 50% of the rated capacity, um, your generator is going to use about the same amount of gas, whether you're using 10 or 20 or 30 or 40. Um, but above 50% is where you're going to start seeing the generator is going to match the uh, gas consumption with the loads. So in technical terms, uh, these are real scientific terms here. <laughs> the generator is actually the part that's creating the usable electricity, and it's actually being powered by an internal combustion engine. So in this situation, um, we call it a generator, but the part that's actually generating is one piece, and the part that's turning that piece is the actual engine. Um, so the generator is going to try to run at pretty consistent RPMs, uh, but the load that you place on the generator, so what you plug into it, is going to determine how much gas the engine needs to maintain that speed. So imagine uh, you're in a car on cruise control. If you have the cruise set so that the wheels turn at a rate of speed needed to produce 55 miles per hour, you know, that's what you said at 55 miles per hour. But if you're going uphill the engine is going to need more gas to maintain that speed because you're increasing the load. You're working against gravity there. If you're going downhill, it's going to need less gasoline to maintain that speed because now gravity is working with you. So that same idea, you increase the load on the engine and to maintain the same speed, it needs more gas. All right. So uh, most manufacturers are going to give you a gas consumption at different ratings which you can kind of use to check for efficiency. So they'll tell you things like it'll run for X number of hours at 70% of the rated capacity or X number of hours at the rated capacity. Now, my understanding is that most commercial generators are most efficient at about 75 to 80% of the rated load. You'll just, but, but that varies. So you're just going to have to really look at the manufacturing data to understand that. And there are some websites out there that have done efficiency testing. Uh, but, but there's just so many variables to account for. You know, are you running motors or are you running solid state things that have a pretty more of a, uh, straight line load profile versus a motor, which has kind of a variable load. So, uh, you just kind of have to look at it. But I think if you stay in that 75 to 80% 
of the rated load, uh, you're going to be you're going to be in a good spot. Um, so generator. The second thing to understand, and I mentioned it a couple times, generators have both a rated load and a maximum load. For example, uh, the big generator that we have at the at the off grid homestead uh, came from Harbor Freight. It's a seven thousand watt rated generator and but it's got a maximum load of 8750 and just so happens that 7000 is this 80% of 70 or 8750 so um so we've got two numbers there the maximum load is what the generator can turn take in terms of startup so the best way to understand the startup loads for your different devices is to utilize a kilowatt meter um so for example with the freezer unplug it and let it sit for about an hour uh, so that you know when you plug it back in, the compressor is going to kick on. Then plug it into a kilowatt meter, and then plug the kilowatt meter into the wall. And if you if you're watching, you'll see what the startup need is for that device, and then you'll see after it's on and the compressor is running what the running wattage is. So if you document those numbers, you can then do the same thing for the fridge, the same thing for the AC, the same thing for any other items you might want to you might wish to run off of the generator. You can then add all those startup needs in one column of a spreadsheet and all of your running needs in another column. And so as long as you keep your startup needs below the maximum rating and your running needs below the rated capacity, you're going to be fine. Uh, you don't want to be above the rated capacity uh, for more than about 30 minutes. So, you know, if you look at it, say, hey, I can actually plug everything in here um, and I might be a little bit above my rated capacity at the very beginning when everything is started up, but then I'll be well below it. The generator is going to be fine as long as those numbers don't exceed the maximum capacity. So uh, for the max efficiency, again, keep the money running needs right around 75% of the rated capacity and you're going to be fine. Um, I, I love the idea of, of doing this work before you actually need to use the generator. Um, I'm also a big fan of you know, not necessarily having everything plugged in at the same time so that you can really maximize your, your fuel usage. So again, Carlos, great question. Guys, keep the questions coming in and I'll keep messaging or answering them. Thanks and have a great day. Uh, next up, I got John Pugliano talking about uh, really a couple different things. One is oil futures and the recent hysteria people had when oil was trading for negative $37 a barrel. And I actually sent this one to John and said, would you please do this for me? Because you're going to have more credibility on explaining this than I am. Um, but people think this is something that it isn't. This is just – and what I said on social media, and I shared an article that's also in the show notes today, where CNBC did actual journalism for a change. I know that's shocking, but CNBC did actual journalism. They looked into something, and they explained it in a calm, rational manner without angling it towards the orange man's bat, and that's why this happened. And they explained exactly how this works and why oil is really not negative, but a derivative of oil is negative. Uh, John's going to explain that. He's also going to talk about something called ETF decay. It's a very important thing to know about. Then I'm going to come back on this one, and I'm going to give you another analogy on the oil itself. And I think that you'll get maybe a chuckle out of it. Um, I should send it to Vin Armani, because Vin Armani, who, you know, come, well, you'll understand when I explain it. Let's just listen to John first. Hey, TSP. Well, it's another week, and so that means that there must be another crisis of the week. And this week, the crisis was negative oil prices that really weren't negative. Well, this segment, I want to talk a little bit about that, and more so than even talking about the negative aspect of the oil pricing, I want to talk about the dangers of investing in derivative-type contracts 
like oil futures and other things that people get themselves into that they really have no idea what the consequences are. You'll hear oftentimes that I receive questions from TSP listeners that ask about Forex investing or investing in futures. And these are people that not only have only a little bit of money, but they also have very little experience in derivatives trading. But because they heard a podcast about it, or they read a post on Facebook, or they saw something on YouTube, they suddenly think that they can go out and take their $1,000 and double or triple it, or you know become a millionaire overnight. Well, whenever those questions come up, you'll usually hear me kind of dissuade people from that to discourage them from getting involved in complex trades that they have no idea what's going on. And I usually try and steer them to simply saving their money and then maybe getting into investing by simply using very conventional and very simple ETFs, broad market that invest in the S&P 500. Well, the reason I take this conservative approach is specifically for events that happened this week where we saw oil futures go negative. Now, as far as the actual price of oil and specifically West Texas Intermediate, the negative pricing all has to do with the fact that the demand for energy and petroleum-related products are obviously way down because not only in the United States, but globally, we're in a shutdown. So people are not flying, people are not driving. And yet companies are still producing oil. And the oil capacity that we use to store that oil is getting filled up. So that's what's causing the overall decrease in the price of oil. But the reason that these futures contracts went negative, and specifically the reason that they plunged so deeply into the red, is because of the way a futures contract works. And this is really important for you novice investors that want to play around in these derivative-type markets. What you have to realize is that a futures contract is a contract to take delivery. Now, 99.9999% of the time, no one ever takes delivery of these contracts. But in this particular crisis, when the capacity for storage and the pipelines and the tankers are all filling up and there's no place for oil to go, well, then the reality can kick in that if you have a futures contract where you have to take delivery in May, and yet you've got no place to store that oil, well, what happens is, is that you've got to unload your contract, and so when they try and roll those over for another month, the price for the storage of the oil, and thus the carry cost of that futures contract trade goes up. And so the value of the oil goes down. And if you don't want to take delivery of that oil, you've got to pay someone else to take it off your hands. That's how you get into negative futures contracts. And where this gets real ugly is that you end up losing more money than you invested to begin with. And that's the real hazard of using derivative products and not realizing that your losses are not capped at zero. You know, if you go out and buy ExxonMobil or Chevron stock and they go out of business or they go bankrupt, well, you can lose all the money that you've invested in those stocks, but no more. On the other hand, if you're investing in a futures contract, or some type of naked or uncovered options contract where you could continue to lose money far in excess of the initial amount that you originally invested. And that's what we're seeing take place right now with these negative oil prices. Now, all the numbers haven't rolled in yet, but I did see that interactive brokers lost $66 million on Monday just to cover the contracts that their investors defaulted on, and I'm assuming we're going to see even bigger numbers roll out from these larger trading houses like TD Ameritrade and others. 
If you go out on social media, on Facebook, you'll hear all kinds of people trying to figure out how to take advantage and make a quick buck on these low oil prices. And so they're running out and investing in ETFs that track the price of oil like USO. Now, while USO is a fine exchange-traded fund, I've used it many times myself, what you have to be really cautious of there is ETF decay. And that's because funds like USO that invest in commodities are subject not only to market conditions and prices and can tango and backwardation, but also in the carry costs of maintaining that commodity. So they have storage, they have security, they have rent and loss of interest capital and all the other things that are associated with a carry trade. And so just because the price of oil goes back up, that doesn't mean that the ETF USO is proportionally going to go up just as much as oil does. And in fact, because of the way oil contracts work and because of forces like contango and backwardation, these ETFs can actually lose money when the price of oil is going up. And we saw that happen this week. On Monday, a lot of people ran out and bought into USO because they were thinking that if oil prices were negative, that as the oil prices naturally had to go up, they would obviously make money. But that's not what happened with the price of USO. On Monday, I think USO opened up at around $3.80. It was close to $4 a share. Well, as I record this, USO is in the $2.60 range. So it's down more than 30% at the same time that oil went from, you know, negative $37 all the way up to 17 So again, just because the commodity is moving up or down, it doesn't mean that your futures contract or the ETF that follows that futures contract is going to move in the same direction. So for all of you that want to know how to take advantage of this glut in oil production and these historically low oil prices, well, first and foremost, I would tell you if you have a little bit of money and if you have even less experience in trading, just keep your money in a nice, safe, FDIC-insured savings account. Don't try and time the energy markets. Don't invest in futures contracts, nor should you invest in complex ETFs that you just don't understand how they work. And for those of you that have more experience and want to do your homework, well, I'll provide Jack with a link to a YouTube video that I did a couple years ago, and this is specifically about ETF decay. And in the tail end of that video, I use the commodity collapse of 2015 and 2016 to show how this ETF I've been talking about, USO, how it underperformed the increase in oil prices by over 50%. Now, that's a long video. I talk a lot about how ETFs work and then specifically about ETF decay. It's about 14 or 15 minutes. So if you're not prone to boredom and you have a high threshold to pain, watch that video. You might learn something and hopefully it'll save you some money in the future. Well, hey, as always... Thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealthsteading Podcast. Okay, so I have to give credit, and I'm not going to read the email because it was pretty long, and I have a feeling he copied it and pasted it from somewhere else because it's, it's pretty long for something you would drop into a text. But Xavier Hawk, who has been on the show before, not for a while, but he does a lot of really cool stuff. He's just a great guy, big in the world of permaculture and cryptocurrency. And we were talking about a bunch of things by text recently, and he sent me this text, and I'm going to give you the summary of it. But I, I should copy that and send it to my buddy Vin Armani. For those that don't know who Vin Armani is, he's a cool guy, good friend of the show, big friend of the Liberty Movement, um, and he's, he's a good personal friend to me. And he said something on Twitter, like, just, there's no way that I can understand 
negative oil prices. And I, I gave him the article that I have linked in the show notes, and I gave him basically the explanation that you just got from John, and he said thanks. But I should send this to him. And the reason is, if you don't know his backstory, Vin was a, a gigolo, a male escort. And uh, he was actually on a show called Gigolos on Showtime, which is where he got a lot of notoriety and made a lot of his wealth from. Uh, I think it was like six seasons of that show. It was like a reality show. So what Xavier uh, sent to me was about escort services um, and related to the oil uh, futures market, which might sound like there's no connection, but it'll make sense, except for instead of being a male escort for females, it was a female escort for males because it is more common. So it said you, you have to imagine it like this. Imagine that Bob thought his wife was going to be out of town for 10 days. And so he put in an order to have 10 escorts, 10 days in a row, show up at his house. He bought a contract in the future. And we will take delivery of these escorts over a 10-day period. And all of a sudden, the COVID pandemic happened, and Bob's wife is now not going to leave the house. And she's going to be there when the female escorts show up. Now, further, lots of other Bobs out there uh, did the same thing, and they ended up with this, this, this requirement to accept delivery of these 10 escorts over 10 days, uh, and now their wife's gonna be there. And worse, there's a, like, you know, like the, the main, uh, escort, uh, facility, let's say, in the state that all the Bobs live in, um, and yes, I caught that reference to a movie I didn't intend right there, The Bobs. But all the Bobs, let's say, are in Illinois. And so there's this one place that all the surplus escorts can normally go. So if I cancel my contract, um, I can just basically not take any money. At, you know, you just pay what I was going to pay, and I'm good. And I don't have to sell my contract to somebody else. They just all go to this place, like like the you know the, the head escort control HQ. But there's so many bobs that screwed up and ordered so many escorts that that place is now full and there's they they won't take them off your hands and the escorts are like I'm coming anyway and you have to pay somebody else to take them now now that doesn't mean that there's nobody buying escorts anywhere else it's only Illinois that this happened in and with the market here what it was is West Texas Intermediate was trading at negative $37 a barrel, while other markets were trading at about $20 a barrel. Because all of that stuff from the West Texas Intermediate Crude has to go to one place. All the oil that comes out of those holes has to go to this one place before it can go anywhere else or have anything else done to it, and that place was full. So you see how that works. So no one was paying anybody to take a barrel of oil anywhere, you know, as far as take it away. I'll give you 37 The only thing that was being traded was the contracts that said you were going to take delivery of this oil. And so as soon as that clog disappears, then oil goes back to its very depressed price of 17 to $20 a barrel. But no one, like what I said on social media is, I will believe this when one of you can do as much as go to any place and get one free barrel of crude and show me you driving away with it in the back of your pickup truck, let alone get paid $37 to take it away. Go show me that. And, of course, I got a lot of booze and anger and animosity about not knowing what I was talking about, but I got nobody with a barrel of oil in the back of a pickup truck because that didn't happen and it wasn't going to happen. It was never going to happen. Um, again, the world of derivatives is really interesting. It's also really scary. Um, if you go to 
the survivalpodcast.com and put in the word quadrillion, you'll find a show that I did way back in the day, like 2008, 2009, on the quadrillion dollar derivatives time bomb that's sitting out there. And it's still out there. And uh, you would think COVID could cause it to explode, and it, it probably won't. It probably won't. But sooner or later, one day, we're going to have to reconcile all these derivatives. And it's going to be pretty nasty when we do. All right, so with that, let's go ahead and uh, we'll take my question today, which I, I found to be an interesting and a simple one, and I feel like having a simple day today. So James says, bottom line up front, should I put Riverstone gravel in my pond liner uh, lined timber frame pond? Details, I just finished up my timber frame pond that fish and plants will go in. Should I treat this like a large aquarium and put rocks in the bottom? Plants will be in containers and elevated. I know an aquarium's gravel promotes good bacterial growth thoughts. Thank you for all you do, James. James, the answer I'm going to give you is, first, before I say what I'm going to say, you are a grown man and you are free to do anything you want. And if you want to put gravel in you, or, or river rock or anything in the bottom of your pond because you like the idea of it, you can do anything you want. I would not. I would not. And the reason that I wouldn't is... When you run an aquarium, you have a lot of control over a lot of things. Um, and you're going to generally, when you put gravel in an aquarium, you're either going to run an, uh, an under-gravel filter, uh, which is going to help a lot, or you're going to run an over-the-back or some other sort of filter that doesn't utilize the gravel. And yes, there'll be a lot of nitrification activity down in that gravel. Uh, if you're going to plant it, that's really even better because the plants are going to take and use a lot of the stuff that's deposited in that gravel and on top of that gravel. Uh, if you're not going to plant it, then you're going to end up vacuuming that gravel. Anybody that keeps an aquarium that does not uh, run a planted aquarium uh, soon learns that if you do not vacuum gravel, it becomes a problem. And in that aquarium that sits inside your house that doesn't have leaves and grass and dust and dirt settling in it, you get a pretty big buildup of fish poop. Even though you're keeping a very relatively small amount of fish, and you're feeding them a controlled amount of food. Now let's take that to an 8x8 or a 10x10 or a 12x12 Miyagi pond. And for those not familiar with the term, it's a term that my buddy David came up with for these timber frame ponds that I built. I built one out of 8 foot 4x4s and one out of 12 foot by 4x4s. And we just kind of stacked them and, 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 and put them together with either really big galvanized spikes or uh, structural wood screws. And then we drop a liner in them, and we finish them off and make them look nice. And they look really pretty. They look like something from the Karate Kid from Mr. Miyagi's backyard, which is why David came up with the term Miyagi Pond. So we build that outside. So we build something like my 12 by 12 Miyagi Pond. So we have um, 144 square feet of surface area. Outside, in the open, and leaves blow and grass blows and we put plants in there and some of the dirt comes out of them and fish poop and birds come and crap in our pond and bugs come and die in our pond the fish eat those and crap those out and we're feeding a significant population of fairly large fish and what's going to happen over time is we're going to build up a significant amount of sediment and it stands to reason that at some point in the life of this pond you're going to get to a point where maybe you you know, examine it in some way and say, there's about a half foot of crap on the bottom of my pond. Anaerobic muck. And you're going to say, self, 
You know what we should do? On a nice warm day, we should drain the pond down to maybe half the volume. And we should dredge that out in some way safely. And we don't poke holes in that liner and make ourselves unhappy. But we should dredge a lot of that material out of this pond and get rid of it. In fact, we should dredge it and we should spread it out in real thin, like on a tarp or something in the sun and the open air. And we should let all that anaerobe become aerobic. And then maybe mix it with something like some other good quality compost. And man, we have this really great resource that we can use. And we have taken that out of our pond and we have regained the lost volume in the pond and we have removed this muck from our pond. Okay, now you put down six inches of gravel and now you try to do that. The other thing is, in most of these ponds, my just my general feel is that you're going to be deep enough that you're not going to be able to plant into that gravel so you don't get any mitigation from that whatsoever. And if you do plant into it, where are you going to plant? You're going to have to plant something like in a four-foot pond. Maybe maybe you could get away with certain large species of water lily, which are now going to colonize the entire bottom of your pond and choke everything out and make it impossible for you to maintain it. So you talked about elevating the plants. I think that is the way to go. Now, where does gravel fit in? So I don't know exactly how you're going to elevate your pond, but if you've looked at what I've done, I've used cinder blocks to build shelves. And I put my cinder blocks so that the holes are open so fish can go in the holes. I don't put them up and down where the fish can't get access to them. And I'll put two cinder blocks with the holes making a tunnel. And then I'll put the next two cinder blocks with the tunnel going the opposite direction. And then the next two cinder blocks the opposite way. And usually it's about three stacks of blocks to get up high enough to put a shelf in. And I'll build those columns, those towers like that. And then I take the cheapest that I can find floor tile that looks like wood from Home Depot of whatever length makes the most sense and I take like two towers and I cross the top of that tower with that shelving uh, with that uh, with that tile to make a shelf and then onto those shelves I can set pots some of those pots might be below the surface of the water and some of those pots the top of the pot might actually be above the surface with the bottom in Uh, that works really good for certain species like um, taro species, uh, which are elephant ear type plants, right? They like to have a little bit above the water. Other things like I have water lily, um, that, you know, lily pads, like dwarf lily pads that are under the water all the way. They're a couple feet down. And I've also done things like I'll take a 14-gallon um, concrete mixing tray. I'll fill that with maybe an inch of high quality soil it can either be like an organic potting soil like uh, the the gold whatever gold it's called uh, miracle, from miracle Grow, um, but the outside stuff without the perlite in it you don't want any perlite in it and then I'll cap that with gravel like pea gravel and I'll put that under the water and I might have an inch of gravel on top of an inch of soil there or maybe two inches of gravel on top of an inch of soil and I'll go into my aquarium and I'll pull out a plant like Valsneria which is this nice tall grass And I'll just push some Valsneria plugs into that tub, which is now, let's say, a foot under the water. Well, this Valsneria can grow a foot easy. And in the warm weather, it will. It'll grow to almost it begins to emerge from the water, except it'll kind of flop over. Now I've got this grass bed that my minnows and small fish can go in. And I've got that gravel bed that can help with the nitrification, the nitrate-nitrite cycle, right, which is great. Um, but not the bottom. 
I think the bottom is is a mistake. Now, the cinder block is something that gives people a lot of hysteria because it's going to make the water basic, whatever. You're going to always fight moving to the acidic in a, in a, in a contained aquatic environment. You are never going to fight moving to the basic. Um, as plants die, as fish die, as poop decays, you're always going to move to the acidic. And things like cinder block that do have some you know, basic elements to them, or alkaline elements to them, um, they're going to form a patina. When that's been under the water for a while, you can reach down and you feel it. There's like a, a coating on it, a slime coating. And it's basically going to make any kind of interaction between the concrete and the water kind of go away. But that patina is going to have this, you know, just like cinder blocks have all those little holes and little pits and little, little places in them, all those little crevices. That film is just going to follow that, and you're going to get all that surface area and edge, and you're going to get. And what's actually forming that patina is the very bacterium and microorganisms that you're looking for to partake in your nitrate nitrite cycles. To me, they do so much more. Now, here's something I haven't done, um, and and I, I think if I would have thought about it at the time, I would have done. And sometime when I'm really motivated and everything else is done on the property, and it's warm, and I can get in my pond and not be unhappy about it and cold. Um, I might go in and take the towers apart temporarily and at each layer so you, you build your first four cinder blocks two and two and you're going to build those towers up and put that shelf on there put a shelf on the bottom and then go up another level and put another shelf not to put anything on but now you're creating more hiding spots for your fish more places that they can go to Right now, what I but I like the way it is now as well because you're coming up three high, and then you have like this cover where the shelf is. You have like this big open covered area, and then you have all the little holes. Now, one thing I don't know if I said when I was talking about this, but to me this is important for the happiest fish you can have. Fish like to fight. They do. If you've ever owned an aquarium, you've watched fish that are supposed to be peaceful fish fight with each other. Especially when one finds a place and is like, This is my place, man. I like this place. This is a perfect place for me to set up shop and be a fish. I might swim around over here and over there for a while, but when I'm just chilling out being a fish, this is my hole. This is my spot. This is where I live. Um, this is so much the case. There was a smallmouth bass that when I was a teenager, I used to fish this little pond. It was a you know, a bike ride away from, from where my grandparents lived in Pennsylvania. And I caught this same bass out from under this same log probably 50 times in one summer. I mean, every day to every other day, I pulled this fish out from under this log to the point where the fish had looked like somebody took a thing and made holes in its mouth. Uh, one time I even caught it, and I had this hook embedded in the skull so hard, even though I could get at it, I couldn't get the hook out. And I was like, this fish is a friend now. So I cut the line, put the fish back, and I like purposely didn't fish under that log for a couple days. And then I like, you know, took a little bluegill, hooked him on, and like skirted him under that log, and... Boom! And there he is. There's Fred. He's back. I pull Fred in. Is it really Fred? He's got lots of holes in his mouth. Bottom lip and pick him up. And I can see this old pattern mustad hook they don't even make anymore. And this is back in the 80s they didn't make this hook anymore. It, it, it's still in there. And now I get my needle nose. And now because it's been there a couple days it pops out. And I put Fred back. So fish find a place and they want to be in that place. So when you make these tunnels with your cinder blocks, what it makes sense to do is take, you know, about two towers next to each other that these platforms are going across. So my holes not only alternate as I build the tower, but my bottom one, if it's going you know, front to back, 
my next one goes left or right, so that when the fish goes in his hole and he looks out of his hole, he can't see the other fish in his hole. They can't see each other, so they can all be little angry fish with, with less hatred toward each other. And the more edge, the more cover, and the more habitat you give them, the more fish you can put in there without them you know, harming each other and overcompeting for resources. And beyond that, just being stressed out. So try to create hiding places for your fish and try to create hiding places that are isolated from other hiding places even when they're close by. Just, just don't let them see each other. Because now I can go in my hole, I can be my... Because and like, like your best fish for this, honestly, are going to be channel catfish. And they kind of all school together and just get along. Right? They, they, and they, they don't really... Like, they'll find, like, a corner or something. Like, when, when I start feeding them, I can tell, like, oh, they were all here. They're, they're a lot more peaceful, honestly, even though they're a bigger predator fish. It's the bluegills, the red-ear sunfish, the shell crackers, or the red-ears are shell crackers, uh, green sunfish, pumpkin seeds. It's all those guys. All the, all the sunnies, bluegill, brim, perch, whatever you call them, based on where you're from. Um, man, they're mean bastards. They're just mean to each other, and they're mean to everything else. But if they all have little places they can go kind of set up shop and be like, I am the master of this little hole, they kind of just leave each other alone. The other fish that you can keep quite a few in a relatively small pond, but if you don't give them places to go, is another catfish species. They will, like, tear each other's asses literally up. Like, you'll pull one out and, like, he'll have part of his tail from the ass down eaten away. Bullhead catfish. You know, it's funny, too, because you go to a pond and they're, like, stacked on top of each other. But you put them in a confined pond, and they can't get away from each other. Unless they have places they can hide, they will become very aggressive toward each other. Uh, and funny enough, not really that aggressive toward other fish. It's, it's a weird thing. It's a, it's a territorial thing. So that's more than you asked, uh, but it was a pretty easy answer, not doing the rock, and, and that's why. Um, building rock structures, building gravel structures, building pans that are in the water that can be removed and serviced, all of that's fine, but I would want to keep the majority of my bottom completely devoid of anything that prevents dredging in the future. With that, we've wrapped up another episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please consider joining the Member Support Brigade. And remember, right now you can do that for 25 bucks, which is stupid cheap. And dummy me, I made this commitment to keep doing it as long as the COVID lockdowns were in place, which I still haven't figured out exactly what that means yet. Uh, but definitely there's enough lockdown in place that I have to keep my word. And you can get MSB for 25 bucks with the discount code 25 bucks, 25BUCKS. When you sign up, get the discounts, great deal. Next up, you remember you can always support this show when you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Uh, that's where you'll find all the items that I recommend with reviews, with write-ups, with a lot of additional information. Like the item I'm going to give you today, even if you don't buy it on T-SPAS, even if you already have something to do this with, well, the recipes that I give you are awesome. And you can use them whether you use T-SPAS or not. But if you're going to buy something online, you know, consider buying it through T-SPAS. You'll help support us in the work that we do. Um, today's item of the day is one I brought you a couple months ago, and I'm bringing it back. It's SPQR Everything Bagel Seasoning. Um, when I first heard about this, I was like, no way. You can get Everything Bagel Seasoning. Because before I gave up the carbs, one of my big weaknesses was an Everything Bagel. I love everything bagels. I still love the idea of an everything toasted with cream cheese and some crispy bacon to go with it. Oh. Well, I learned about making chaffles, and there's a, a video today in the write-up about how to make chaffles with a little waffle iron, which is basically, it looks like a waffle, but it's made out of cheese and egg, and it doesn't sound great, but it's really, really good. 
And then you put cream cheese on it and you add this stuff and it's not like an everything bagel, but it's good. It's really good. And then my wife came up with a way to make some really awesome low-carb crackers using low-carb tortillas and this seasoning. And it's, like, dead simple, and that's in the write-up as well. But, like, there's a picture from the vendor uh, today that's in the write-up, and it's like a pasta dish with some chicken, and it's sprinkled on there. Well, it's, you know, sesame seeds and poppy seeds and garlic and onion, and, well, of course that would be good. The stuff's just awesome. It's really inexpensive. It's like 12 bucks for a great big bottle of it. And I've tried like four different versions, including the one that everybody says they love, Trader Joe's. I just find the SPQR to be the best version thereof. Uh, so check it out. But remember, no matter what you buy, if you start your shopping at tspaz.com, you can help us and the work that we do. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. song of the day today that John Adam had for us um, was from Stevie Wonder. And it's You Haven't Done Nothing, You Ain't Done Nothing, something like that. It's a very angry political song toward... Uh, Richard Nixon at the time the song came out. We're not doing that song today. Not because I don't like it. Um, I'm not in an angry mood today. I'm in a happy mood today. And when I'm in a happy mood, you know, guys, I'm always going to dig into the Jimmy Buffett catalog of songs you haven't heard and play you something by Jimmy Buffett. Um, this is a song you may or may not have heard, but I, I would say more of you haven't than have. Even those of you that generally would say, yeah, Jimmy Buffett's all right. Um, it's called We Are the People Our Parents Warned Us About. And I love this song. I always have. Um, And I feel like this song is, and this is why I think so many people love Jimmy Buffett's music, especially the stuff, not the three songs you've heard on the radio for the last 45 years. The other music. You see yourself in the music. You see yourself being this person, like, when you grow up, if you don't do this and work, study hard, and get a good job, you're going to be like blah, blah, blah. And you know what? That's a lot like I am. And it ain't as bad as you said. I like being me. I love being a redneck, hippie, duck farmer who doesn't have a real job. You know, I was told by, you know, all the well-meaning adults around me that if I, I needed to go to school, work hard, and go to college because I was a smart kid, and if I went to college, I could get a good job and work for 30 years there and retire with a gold watch type, type of mentality. And to be fair, it was the 1980s, and these were people that had done that, but they did it blue-collar you know, through the 40s, 50s, and 60s in the post-war era. And, you know, my uncle, my great-uncle, who was one of the people that warned me about this, uh, becoming this type of person, you know, he went to World War II. He ended up being a staff sergeant by the time he came home. He served in the, in the European theater in Italy and Sicily. Um, he came back home. He worked for a little bit in the mines with my grandfather, um, and, and did, did a few other things, but eventually he landed and did some you know, construction work and things like that, but eventually he landed a job at a place called Cressona Aluminum. He worked there for almost 40, like 36, 37 years. He retired with a great pension, and you know, Cressona Aluminum was a place you wanted to work. Like Even when I was in high school, like you got on a waiting list to hopefully get a job there. And you would kill yourself for the first few years working you know, either late shift or swing shift, And eventually you'd get enough seniority where you could work days and, you know, you, you'd move up and what have you. And you could stay there forever. And I don't know that that's still the case at Crisona Aluminum. I'm sure it's not called Crisona Aluminum anymore if it's even still in existence. But that was his idea of what it was to be a responsible adult. Because they would take care of you if you took care of them. And all they could see is, well, if you would go get a college degree, you could be the guy that works in the office at a place like Crisona Aluminum instead of the guy that works on the plant floor. And he has it even better than me. So go do that. Or you'll become like this directionless, 
you know, free-spirited hippie kind of thing. Hello? I am the redneck hippie duck farmer that I was warned about. And I couldn't be happier. And what I want to say to you is encourage your children to become who they really are. Don't worry about typecasting them into what you think they should be. Don't try to make your kid into a lawyer if your kid's not a kid that wants to be a lawyer. Don't try to make your kid into a doctor. Don't try to make your kid into anything. Take your children on journeys of discovery and let them become what they are because they're going to become that anyway in the end. The longer it takes, the less happy they're going to be with their lives. And the longer it will take them to find true happiness. And then take that advice for yourself. I don't care how old you are or how long you've been around or how far down the path you are. If what you're doing is not really in keeping with who you are, change it. Become the people your parents warned you about. And you just might be a little happier. With that, has been Jack Spirigo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. about